traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. The title of tonight's Twilight Zone comes from an 1842 poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called Loxley Hall. And it is quite a long poem, so I won't read it all, but the relevant lines go like this. When the centuries behind me, like a fruitful land reposed, when I clung toward the present for the promise that it closed, when I dipped into the future, far as human I could see, saw the vision of the world and all the wonder that would be. In the spring a fuller crimson comes upon the robin's breast, in the spring the wanton lapwing gets himself another crest. In the spring a livelier iris changes on the burnished dove, in the spring a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. Now I am no poetry scholar and the old English language can be a bit impenetrable at times, so I will rely on the interpretation of others. According to the website phrases.org, the meaning of the poem is this. The poem concludes with what is one of the best known lines in English poetry, however, it wasn't the whimsical accolade to young love as might be imagined. The protagonist muses on unrequited love in a somewhat bitter mood. Tennyson describes the poem as showing young life, its good side, its deficiencies and its yearnings. By the word fancy, Tennyson meant imagination, a mental image. To take a fancy to is to be attracted to and imagine fancy oneself together with the object of one's affection. So when we think of that in relation to tonight's Twilight Zone and who the young man in it is fixated on, then we have to ask ourselves, is it bringing us into the realms of Romeo and Juliet or Norma and Norman Bates in Psycho? Now the bond between a mother and her son is of course a beautiful thing, but fiction has a long tradition of nudging that love into the realms of obsession. We are all of course aware of Robert Block and Alfred Hitchcock's take on that, but what about Richard Matheson's? Let's see what that take is when we see just who is the object of this young man's fancy. You're looking at the house of the late Mrs. Henrietta Walker. This is Mrs. Walker herself as she appeared 25 years ago. And this, except for isolated objects, is the living room of Mrs. Walker's house as it appeared in that same year. The other rooms upstairs and down are much the same. The time, however, is not 25 years ago, but now. The house of the late Mrs. Henrietta Walker is, you see, a house which belongs almost entirely to the past. A house which, like Mrs. Walker's clock here, has ceased to recognize the passage of time. 
Only one element is missing now. One remaining item in the estate of the late Mrs. Walker. Her son, Alex, 34 years of age and up till 20 minutes ago, the so-called perennial bachelor. With him is his bride, the former Miss Virginia Lane. They're returning from the city hall in order to get Mr. Walker's clothes packed, make final arrangements for the sale of the house, lock it up and depart on their honeymoon. Not a complicated set of tasks, it would appear, and yet the newlywed Mrs. Walker is about to discover that the old adage, you can't go home again, has little meaning in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 11th of May 1962, written by Richard Matheson and directed by John Brahm. Now John Brahm is of course one of our most prolific Twilight Zone directors, so I won't cover his bio again, and this is episode 9 of 12 in his Twilight Zone run, with You Drive, The New Exhibit, and Queen of the Nile still to come. And at this point, Richard Matheson really needs no introduction as well. So if we count the sailing adaptations of his work, this is number 10 in his 16 episodes. So we are over the halfway point of the Richard Matheson Twilight Zones. So quite unusually, Rod Sailing's opening narration is from the moment that the title music stops. There are no scenes to set things up here, just quite a long and straightforward narration. Maybe this was one where they felt they needed to lay things out, to really say that this is a house that's stuck in the past, and let us know who the characters are. So I guess it's a trade-off. Can the episode tell us these things without Rod Sailing laying it out for us? Possibly, but I suppose we will trust that they felt that it was necessary. Now as far as Sailing being in the scene, well I guess he is, but not in the way that I would normally like. It is of course the same set, but there's no interactivity. But I do like the way they cut in the scenes of the couple outside getting out of their car, and sailing pulling the curtains back to watch as they come in. So what is evident here, and becomes more and more apparent as the episode goes on, is that this really is a bottle episode. It doesn't stray from this one location, the house, which is probably why the original title for the story was The House. So does this bottle episode mean that it was cheaper to put together, well, I rarely go into budgets, but there isn't a huge amount of trivia on this episode, and because Martin Grams Jr. put the work in, in unlocking the door to a television classic, let's just have a quick look at that. So this episode cost $51,344 to make, so if we compare it to an episode in the same season, with a few more locations, and some special effects work like, say, Hocus Pocus and Frisbee, the production costs on that were $55,302. So in today's money, that doesn't seem like a great deal, but if we adjust for inflation, Young Man's Fancy would cost $436,524, and Hocus Pocus and Frisbee would cost $470,000, $175. So almost a $35,000 difference, which again doesn't seem like such a huge amount 
in today's money either. But then if you go to the next episode, I Sing the Body Electric, that one cost $70,374 then, and now that would be 598316 So there is a fair bit of difference with those ones. So what I suppose Rod Serling's open narration does for us is allows the characters to really just get on with the task at hand. When we meet Virginia and Alex, we already know who they are. They don't have to say, wow, that was a great wedding we just had. I really wish my mum was still here, but she died. All of that is out of the way now. And a few words here and there just reinforce what Rod Serling said. Oh. I thought I'd clean the place up a little bit before we left. I'll get it out of here. Uh-uh. You go call Mr. Wilkins. I, I thought I left this card right here. I can't seem to find it. Well, get the number from information. Oh, of course. I tell you what, you go on up and pack and I'll call Mr. Wilkins. All right? Oh, darling, everything's going to be all right. I'm so happy to be Mrs. Walker at last. After all these years. Come on. Go on up and pack. <sighs> all right. It's clear from the way that Alex is acting that being in this house again is having an effect on him. The way he looks at the picture of his mother, he looks wistfully at the old grandfather clock. And one thing that Sailing isn't explicit about in his opening narration is when exactly... Mrs. Walker, Alex's mother, passed away, but we do find out later on that it was a year ago. And when Virginia says that she was happy to be Mrs. Walker after all these years, clearly there has been a block on them taking their relationship to the next level. Also, Sailing talks about how the house is almost entirely in the past. So again, it gives that impression of sometimes... When you go to a person of a certain age's house, but it hasn't really been modernised, it can be like stepping back in time. But perhaps some of that is lost because we are watching this almost 60 years later on. But I do think we can get some impression of it, with things like the decor, the pictures on the walls, the patterned wallpaper, which are somewhat in contrast to the cleaner lines and art deco influence of some of the other Twilight Zones, at least. Alex, I thought you were going to... No, there's plenty of time. What? Like, what do you think we should take out of here when we move? The television set, I guess, huh? And, uh... The electric clock? It's only a few years old. Darling, I thought we'd decided to discuss all that after the house was sold. Sold? I, I know, but I, I just thought that maybe we should decide now. I, I mean, like, in the kitchen, for instance. We'll take the refrigerator and the stove. They're pretty new. I just bought them for Mother a few months... a few months before she died. All right, Alex, fine. We'll discuss it later, but we've really got to leave. Of course. So let's take a moment to look at the relationship of this couple before Alex starts to go off the rails. Let's meet Virginia Walker first, though, and then we'll get into that. Now, Virginia Lane Walker was played by Phyllis Thaxter, and like her co-star Alex Nichol, 
She was a one-time Twilight Zone player, and also like Nicole, she caught the acting bug early. She was born in 1919 and she made her Broadway debut at the young age of 17. Now she doesn't have the volume of credits that a number of the actors of the day had, because she was mainly a film actor and worked steadily in the movies throughout the 40s and 50s. It was only in the late 50s and 60s that she began to turn to television and started to add up credits in shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But unbeknownst to me, because she had changed quite a bit, she was a very important character in one of my favourite films of all time. The 1978 film, Superman, in which she played Ma Kent. And she retired from acting in 1992 and I hope that she too enjoyed her retirement until she passed at the age of 92 in 2012. I think that what she does so well in the role is play a very fine line between several conflicting emotions. She clearly loves Alex, but there is also a very barely perceptible at first frustration with his dithering way of being at times. Sometimes she does seem to mother him. One moment she'll tell him to do something like call the realtor, but then she'll say that she'll do it herself because he's so hesitant and lacking in confidence with whatever he does. So it could be that he has partnered with someone who does mother him in a way because his mother was such a controlling influence in his life and he's trying to replicate that relationship in a way. But I feel that it's more a case of she feels the relief of his mother not being there and holding him back. She wants to rush ahead with these things, but he is just a ball of hesitation. And I do think she shows remarkable patience earlier on, and I do think that Phyllis Thaxter gets these shades of the character too. What about the radio? It's pretty old, but we can have it fixed. Maybe it works now. Look at it. Where's it turn like that? Look at all this carving. All the work they put into it, the craft, the programs we used to hear on this. Major Bose, Fred Allen, and all the music. We used to sit in here all the time listening to music. Mother's favorite was Eddie Duchin. I just remembered. She used to be crazy about a, about a record of his called The Lady in Red. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Lady in red, all the fellas are crazy for the lady in red. Oh, the lady in red, the fellas are crazy for the lady in red. She's a bit gaudy, but naughty, what a personality. Oh, the lady in red, it's fresh as a daisy when the town is in bed. Dancing and dining and shining with originality. She's very proper, she's nothing more than a pound, but all oh, me and all oh my. So this version of The Lady in Red that you can hear now isn't actually the version mentioned in the episode. I can't find that one, so this one is by Joe Hames and his orchestra from 1935. And several artists did their take on this song at the time too. But this song now becomes a bit of a trigger throughout the episode, a signifier 
that there may be something at play here. Now the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia entry on this song says, Song originally performed by pianist and orchestra leader Eddie Dukin that is revealed to be the late Henrietta Walker's favourite tune in Young Man's Fancy. Newlywed Virginia Walker begins to hear the song playing on Henrietta's radio even though the machine is supposed to be broken. Later, her husband Alex plays it on a record player in his old room, and when the camera shows the record playing, it's revealed to be Lady Be Good, not Lady in Red. And Martin Grams Jr. elaborates on this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. He says, while the music heard on the program was the Lady in Red, the label on the record was Lady Be Good by George Gershwin. This may have been intentional. Finding a record with a label for Eddie Dukin's The Lady in Red might have been difficult to locate and secure for this episode. So the prop man probably chose Lady Be Good, figuring the audience would have a difficult time to read the label as it spun on the record player and the title was close enough to pass without observation. But of course, in the 60s they didn't figure that one day we'd be playing these things on Blu-ray. But we'll forgive them that little blooper. He's mine now. You'll never get your claws on him again. So at this point, Virginia talks to the very stern-looking photo of Mrs. Henrietta Walker, Alex's mother, and she's saying he's mine now. So we'll put a pin in that for the moment and come back to it later on. But I think this is a good scene where even a jolly little song like The Lady in Red takes on a creepy aspect to it when the radio starts to play it by itself. And when Virginia goes upstairs, she discovers Alex sitting in his old room, childlike, looking at his toys. Oh, I, uh, I was just looking at some of my old things that the mother kept. Look. Looks as good as ever. No. Alex, I thought you were going to... Look! The Hardy Boys and Secret of the Caves. <laughs> Bill Bolton and Hidden Dangers. Tarzan and the Anthony. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. Alex, please. Remember these. So as Alex takes a bit of a weird walk down memory lane, let's meet the man who played them, because the titles of a couple of those books would actually link to something that became quite prominent in his life a few years later. Alex Walker is played by Alex Nichol, and he was a New Yorker who was born in 1916, and he caught the acting bug early too. Now I do like to find links to Plans to the Apes with Twilight Zone actors, and in this case the link comes early, because Nichol became an apprentice to the actor Maurice Evans, who played Dr. Zaius in Planet of the Apes. And Nickel then honed his craft on stage in Shakespeare plays until his acting career was interrupted by World War II and he became a tech sergeant in the National Guard for five years. 
When he returned, he hit the Broadway stage and also became a member of Lee Strasberg's actor's studio. And when he hit the big screen, he starred in his fair share of westerns, and while he doesn't really have the volume of work that is typical of other hard-working actors of the day, he did work steadily through the 50s and 60s, but never really broke out as a leading man. And some say this was why he diversified, mainly in the later 60s and early 70s, into directing. Now, he only has 11 directing credits, but when we think back to the books that he found in his room, and then we look at the thing that stands out most in his directing career, it was 10 episodes of the Ron Eli Tarzan television series, and that ran for almost two seasons beginning in 1966, with almost 60 episodes. And if you remember, that's the one where Tarzan spoke with perfect American English, because he'd previously left the jungle and then returned to it when he became tired of civilization. The dark land of the jungle is the country of the unknown, of savagery, terror, and peril beyond the imagination of men. Here, in the forbidden tangle of the jungle, a child was found and raised by the great apes. The boy took the name Tarzan and later was educated in civilization. But then Tarzan returned to the deadly land he knew so well. And everywhere in the jungle, from the great falls to the huge mountains to the land of ghost men and the limitless rainforest, the cheetah has grown to know one who is swifter. The lion knows one who is braver, Tarzan. The strength of Tarzan, no man can say. Deep in the jungle, Tarzan continues to enforce his law, the law of right. Tarzan's awesome warning cry is known to every living creature in the jungle. And Nickel retired fully from acting in 1976, and I hope that he too enjoyed a long and happy retirement, and he passed away in 2001 at the age of 85. So how is he in this? Well, this is one of those times when someone is so successful at what they're doing that it's hard to actually like the character that they're portraying in any way. Now, I must stress that this isn't about saying a man can't be sensitive and he can't have a close relationship with his mother or anything like that. Absolutely, those things are okay. But this episode is painting the character of Alex as annoyingly spineless and his mother as this domineering, controlling woman. So I think that the point of it is to show him in a negative light. And in that regard, sure... Alex Nickel pulls it off, but he pulls it off so well that it's hard not to be annoyed by the character sometimes and wish he would just grow a spine. I don't want to sell the house. I don't want to sell it, Mother. So at about the halfway mark in this episode, I think we know where we are now. Alex has this obsession and longing for the past that is bordering on unhealthy, and the episode clearly wants us to think that his mother was this very stern and domineering woman, because every time we see a picture of her, she's very stone-faced and hard-looking. 
So Virginia has clearly been stuck in the middle of the two of them for years, hence her frustration with Alec's behaviour, because she has obviously thought that this would be the end of it when his mother passed away and that she would be able to now have a normal relationship with him. But there is also a hint that something possibly supernatural is going on here and that Mrs. Henrietta Walker is still having some influence over the whole situation. So let's see how they bring this home in the second half. One of the devices that the episode uses is, I suppose, a warping of time. The realtor comes by and when Virginia goes to make a phone call for him, she sees that the phone has become one of those old-fashioned upright phones. Now I will be honest, on my first watch I completely missed that. And again, I think it's maybe, with this being a 60-year-old show, one old-fashioned thing being substituted with another old-fashioned thing didn't quite register with me now as it would with people then. What is it? Couldn't... I mean, couldn't we live here, Verge? It's a pretty nice house. No! Well, don't just say no without even thinking about it. We, we, we could redecorate a little. I, I want to get out of here. I, I just, I want to leave. Right now. Alex, you promised me when your mother died you'd sell this house. Well, she's dead. Alex, dead. She's been dead for a year now. And I, I waited that year and all the years before. Twelve years. Twelve long years of waiting for you. I, I want my own home. I have a right to that. When Alex begins to talk about wanting to live in this house, and it's hard to say for definite because the character has this wishy-washy aspect to him anyway, but I think the actor Alex Nichol is giving Alex Walker a bit of a childlike aspect to him in the way he delivers his lines. Like, perhaps what's to come is a gradual process which has already begun, and it hasn't only begun on him, but also the house itself. Because the episode has made a big show of showing us the vacuum cleaner in the house earlier on, but when Virginia walks from the hallway later on, it's now an old-fashioned upright vacuum cleaner. And again, it's something that loses a bit of impact with time, but the episode puts a more definite date on things with a magazine from 1936 on an armchair. And then of course our final sequence has Mother returning to the house and Alex reverting back to being a young boy again. Oh boy! Go away lady. We don't need you anymore. Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic highlights a couple of interesting things about the episode. And he says that after reviewing the footage, it was decided by Buck Houghton to film insert shots with no people on the camera for the opening shot of the exterior of the house. And on the same day that those were shot, retakes were shot with Alex Nichol, Helen Brown, and a young boy named Richard Sieber, who was a member of the Screen Actors Guild at the time. This was for a proposed revision of the closing scenes. 
and those scenes were filmed, but they were never used for the finished film. And apparently the reason for that was that the young boy they used didn't look like the picture of Ricky Kelman, the original actor, whose picture was seen framed in a previous scene. And Martin Grams Jr. goes on to say that Richard Matheson commented later that he liked this episode very much, except for the last few minutes. He felt that Mother should have been more scary looking since she was supposed to be a ghost. And he also documents the original closing scene. After young Alex tells Virginia goodbye lady, she catches her breath faintly as the door closes. Screaming his name, she lurches up the remaining steps and rushes towards Alex's room. Virginia flings open the door and freezes gasping. Standing in the room as it looked in the 1930s, everything seen as though a shimmering haze fading until there is only the 1961 room with no boy and no mother. Staring at the empty room with dazed, uncomprehending eyes, the camera tilts towards the heavens. And Matheson elaborates on these things in The Twilight Zone Companion. He says, That ending I hated. It was the way I wrote it, the story being that the boy was causing it, not the mother. It's just that the mother didn't look menacing. She looked a little worn out, like Stella Dallas or something. It didn't have the impact it should have had. She should have been kind of horrifying so that when Phyllis Thaxter started to tell her off, you thought that there was a confrontation here like in The Uninvited, but there wasn't that feeling to it. And then the boy came out and he wasn't very good either, which kind of blew the whole point of the show. When I started watching this episode, I assumed it was a Rod Sailing episode. It seems a bit more in his wheelhouse, the domestic interpersonal nature of it. And perhaps that expectation did have an effect on my first impressions and my enjoyment of it. I'll be honest, when I first saw it, I didn't think much of it. But on a second watch, I found myself warming to it a bit more and finding a bit more to chew over. It is of course a Richard Matheson episode and while Matheson didn't always need his stories to be morality plays, something that Rod Sailing did often but not exclusively, the setting of this one does seem to at least lull us into some sense that this is in that arena, because it is concerning itself with relationships and family dynamics. That lovely American couple with the veneer of respectability that Sailing would just love to scratch the surface of and see what was underneath. Now some might say that the tug of war between a mother and her son's chosen partner with the son in the middle is a bit of a cliche but it's something that I've certainly witnessed several times in my life so while the battle axe mother is a broad stroke I don't think the situation is. But is this very specific situation worthy of examination by the Twilight Zone? Well, if this is what it's going to do with it, I'm not quite sure that's the case. You know, a good Rod Serling morality play does have a point of view and a strong sense of right and wrong, but that doesn't really seem to be the case here. Virginia is the only likeable character in it, and what she asks of her husband Alex isn't unreasonable. We see her early on saying he's mine now to the picture of Henrietta Walker, but it's a comment born of frustration rather than unfounded malice 
or a woman trying to steal the woman's son away. And you do end up wondering how Virginia actually got to the point of marrying Alex in the first place because Alex Walker is quite an unlikable character. Not a bad person, but a thoroughly limp and ineffective one. So while I didn't initially care for this one, I do think that this is kind of interesting territory, but I do find it to be lacking something that would bring it even to the bottom of the top tier Twilight Zones, and I'd probably more put it at the bottom of the mid tier, and probably quite low down in my overall ranking of Richard Matheson episodes. For me, it's really the Phyllis Thaxter show. She's the most valuable player here, and she's the one who holds it all together with a really strong performance. If I tried to take anything from it, it's perhaps a different take on Rod Serling's semi-frequent tales of yearning to go back. In Walking Distance, he paints the past as a picture-perfect place, but as Martin Sloan finds out when he gets a limp from the Twilight Zone, Serling is still saying you can't go back, you need to make the most of right now. But we still understand Martin Sloan's desire to do it. Richard Matheson, however, is painting an obsession with the past as an unhealthy thing, a corrupting thing. Unlike Martin Sloan, the Twilight Zone doesn't punish Alex for wanting to go back. In fact, it lets him go back. Nobody is redeemed, and the only person who is punished is Virginia, who doesn't really deserve it. Rather than this being a case of cosmic justice or cosmic reward, this is a case of cosmic consequences. It's a cosmic extrapolation of a situation rather than a cosmic intervention in one. And that's no bad thing. I think that's a very valid thing to do sometimes. Unfortunately, sometimes there are no winners. And in this case, in some part at least, I think that includes the audience too. Exit Miss Virginia Lane. Formerly and most briefly, Mrs. Alex Walker. She has just given up a battle and in a strange way retreated. But this has been a retreat back to reality. Her opponent, Alex Walker, will now and forever hold a line that exists in the past. He has put a claim on a moment in time and is not about to relinquish it. Such things do happen in the Twilight Zone. Okay, and we are back in the swing of things. We are back to our normal Twilight Zone episodes. I hope you did enjoy the Sailing Fest ones. You know, I know I kind of went for a bit of schmaltz at the end there, but I think it was a genuine reflection of the, the kind of friendships that were made there and, and how I kind of felt about the whole thing, and a lot of us did. I mean, if you go over to the Flick Chat group that I have, a lot of us had this sort of sailing fest hangover a little afterwards, not from drinking, although there was a bit of that going on, but more just, it was such a, a nice place to be with, you know, like-minded people that it is a bit of an adjustment going back. But, um, but I hope you enjoyed the coverage anyway. And if you couldn't make it, I hope it brought a bit of sailing fest to you. Now, there is word that it may be going on again next year if they can pull it together. So 
if that is the case, I would hate to be sat at home wishing I was there. I'm going to do my best to be there. It might take the stars aligning in a particular way for that to happen, but if I can make it happen, then uh, I'm going to I'm going to try my best to go. And speaking of sailing fest, I just want to mention quickly when I was in Recreation Park uh, speaking with Paul from the Night Gallery Twitter feed, we were stood there recording and. There was a lady there who had introduced herself the previous day. I do apologize. I, I can't remember your name, but I met so many people. But you were so nice and you came over with your son and you said how you listened to the podcast on your walks. And, and you were so lovely. Thank you. But while I was recording with Paul, I, you were coming over and you mentioned something. And then you noticed we were recording and you kind of um, went, oh, sorry, and uh, made your exit. And I was... I was waving you over because I wanted you to just come and talk to us and get on the record and, and, and have a bit of a chat. So I'm sorry if it seemed like you interrupted, but you didn't. But it would have been good for you to for you to come over and join in. But maybe next year, maybe next year. But thank you for coming over. But going there and doing those episodes and the lead up to it was uh, did kind of throw things off with the Twilight Zone podcast. It doesn't take much for my... Uh, my schedules and my life to to get tipped into chaos when the routine is broken so i'm trying to get things back on track normally i would go over to submitted for your approval at this point but i'm going to kind of draw a line under it for now and maybe build things up again because i think we've probably lost a bit of momentum with the regular episodes but I am going to play one clip that a longtime friend of the show, Stephen, sent me about the gift. And then I'll explain what will happen with listener feedback after that. So take it away, Stephen. Hi, Tom. You seem to enjoy audio comments from your fans. So I'll offer my take on the gift. I'm Stephen, your longtime fan from San Francisco. In the gift, Serling tells us that faith is a cure for fear. But faith in what? An advanced alien civilization sends an emissary to Earth with a cure for cancer. So we should have faith in science, right? Science cures ignorance and fear, and in this case it cures our fear of cancer. So why on Earth does Serling muddle the message with an allegory of Jesus? That suggests we should have faith in God and miracles, not science and medicine. In some ways, this episode seems comedic. The alien, Mr. Williams, appears to be an all-American boy and apparently he can speak only English. We assume his destination was the United States, but his ship crashes in Mexico. Perhaps his ship crashed into the wall on the Mexican border, a wall to deter aliens. Even though the Mexicans are ignorant and superstitious, all of them speak English. The Mexicans are Christians who already have faith in Jesus for all the good it does. So again, I have to ask what Serling is asking us to have faith in. Should we have faith in aliens who drop in unannounced on Earth? A few episodes back in To Serve Man, Serling showed us what can come of that. Guess who's coming to dinner? I thought it was unfair for the doctor to refer to the bartender as Judas. 
the bartender believed that Mr. Williams might have murdered the police officer, so it was reasonable for him to contact the authorities. In the Twilight Zone, aliens generally want to harm humans. The monsters are due on Maple Street, people are alike all over, will the real Martian please stand up to serve man, black leather jackets, I could be wrong, but The Gift might be the only Twilight Zone episode when aliens want to help humans. The Gift offers a consolation prize. We lost the cure for cancer, but we gained proof that we are not alone in the universe. Hopefully, the Mexicans will share that knowledge with the world, helping us prepare for the next visit. A final thought. There is a similarity between Jesus and Mr. Williams. They both came to a backward place and ended up dead for it. I'm reminded of a line from the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, when Judas asks Jesus, Why'd you choose such a backward time and such a strange land? Well, that's my take on the gift. I prefer writing to talking, so we'll see if I do this again. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Stephen. It was good to hear your voice, and thank you so much for sending that in. I don't think there's anything in that that I disagree with. It, it was quite a, a problematic episode. So what I'm going to do with listener feedback for now, if we could just put a pin in it for the moment, and we are coming up to the end of Season 3. Now, normally on the Twilight Zone podcast, I do two episodes at the end of a season. There is an episode where I sit and talk to Luke, the other host, the one-time host of the Twilight Zone podcast, and we'll go through the season that was and the season that is to come and, and just have a general chat about it. Then last time round, I did a thing where I called up six listeners and we had a bit of a chat about it too. That was a lot of fun and it was enjoyable to do it, but it was also very time-consuming. And I think we have a lot more listeners now than we did then. So what I will say is I will open it up to a bit more of a general listener feedback episode about the season that was and your hopes for the next season. Now, there are very specific questions to cover to keep it in a kind of format. And what I will do in the next few episodes before the end of the season, I will tell you what those questions are. And you can say, hey, I'm going to spend five minutes answering all those questions, or I'm going to spend five minutes answering one of those questions. You know, one of those questions might fit something that you really want to say about an episode in season three that you, you really want to elaborate on. So bear with me for now. I'm going to put a hold on listener feedback, and that will be the next time that we do it. So listen to one of the next episodes for more details about that. And then going into season four, I think we're probably going to do it in a bit of a different way. So bear with me on that, okay? Now, I don't really like to push Patreon too much. You know, it, it, a lot of people do it these days. I think it's justifiable because podcasting or, or whatever you do does take a lot of work. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong in accepting the goodwill of people who want to recognize that in some way, especially when it means you can get better equipment, you can get better recording software, you can upgrade your website, you can go to Sailing Fest, you know, those kind of things. So 
I don't like to push it too much, but what I will say is this, I would, if you did enjoy the Sailing Fest coverage, it is only because of the kindness of the listeners who contribute that I was able to go and do that. I would love to do it again. I don't know what that coverage would be next time, but hopefully I would put something together that was as enjoyable as that. So if you enjoyed it and would consider being a patron at patreon.com slash Podcast. So maybe we can make that a reality next time. I would appreciate it. And over there, there's, I mean, there's a ton of podcasts over there now. There are podcasts about the 80s show. There are podcasts about Night Gallery. There are podcasts about Sailing's other work. And there are those missing episodes that I didn't do when Luke was um, presenting the show. And they're over there as well. So if you are able to contribute a book or two I would appreciate it and hopefully we can get more Sailing Fest coverage next time. So speaking of patrons, normally I thank them by name and I assign and I assign the episode that they are supporting here on the podcast I'm only sort of half done with that but I will read out the names because like I said Sailing Fest has just thrown everything off in life but I will get back on track so I think I might have mentioned some of these names already. If I haven't, then bear with me and I'll get the list straight next time. So I want to thank Caitlin Swiderski and she is the sponsor of Tom Elliott Reads 4 o'clock. Caitlin, it was so nice to meet you at Sailing Fest. Thank you so much for coming over and saying hello. And if you are there next time, hopefully we'll get to chat a bit more. Uh, Jocelyn Thomas, you are the sponsor of 4 o'clock, so thank you for that. Harold Nomi, you are the sponsor of Nothing in the Dark, one of my favourites. Brian Lund, you are responsible for the controversial Blairy Man, thank you so much. Philip Galbo, you are responsible for one of my favourite underrated episodes, The Trade-Ins. And Fief Sutton, you are the sponsor of The Gift, so thank you. Now, I haven't uh, put in the dedications for this, but I just wanted to mention the people. Deron Talley, thank you for becoming a patron. Darren Gerard Cook, thank you as well. And the mysterious S, Mr. S, Mrs. S, who knows, but thank you. Uh, John Resendez, thank you for becoming a patron too. Alan Martin, thank you, I appreciate it. Brian Mead, Heather Circle, and Ralph Carusillo, thank you all for becoming patrons, and I will get your episode dedications up soon. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there. I will thank the new iTunes reviewers next time as well. Starting to get things a bit more back on track, so please bear with me. But let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. The name Ray Bradbury has become synonymous with a new horizon of American writing. Next week on The Twilight Zone, we present a typical Bradbury tale. It also has typical Bradbury ingredients, including a grandmother building a factory. Now, if this doesn't intrigue you, then I'm simply not doing justice to a most intriguing tale. I hope you'll join us next week for I Sing the Body Electric. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke.
Saturday nights over most of these stations. 